a world that is alienated from God, but it's a world that is not their home. And in this world, we are to live a certain way. We are to be set apart. We are to be holy. Um, And it's in light of our relationship with the Father, the Son, by the power of the Spirit. And today we're going to look at verses 13 through 25. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect Word as we hear the words of Christ together. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your mind for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. Oh God, I pray that we would cling to that good news, that word that is making us new, that is making us different, that has given us an eternal glory that doesn't waste away, that will not be burned up, whose glory will not fade. And in light of that hope, we would be holy. We would tremble in the blood of Christ and we would love one another. Make it so by the power of your Spirit, according to your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Trembling, with his little lips quivering, my young, one of my sons, when he was young, about three, two or three years old, we were standing in a pool and he was squeezing me as tight as a three-year-old's hands could possibly squeeze his father. He, he was latched onto my arms and he wasn't going to let go. You see, I was teaching him to swim and it was the same way that I had learned how to swim. When I was about three or four and I was at a pool in Florida with my granddad and he looked at me and said, can you swim? And I said, no. And he said, well, let's fix that. And he just threw me in the middle of the deep of the pool. 
and I learned how to swim in about half a second. And so I thought, well, this is a great time to teach my son how to swim. We were visiting family in Florida, and we were in the pool, and I figured he had had those floaties on for too long. I think he'd warm for about a day at that time, and we're going to get rid of those things. And so I said, let's get this done. And when I went to toss him, he realized what was going on, and he just latched onto me. And he wasn't going to let go, and he screaming and clinging in terror, which made for a very awkward scene as my, my mother-in-law looked on at what I was doing to her grandbaby out at the pool. And, and he, it got even more awkward because as I tried to pry him off of me to push him in, I wasn't giving up. I was going to win. He just he started screaming this, which was very awkward. Dad, just chastise me. Just chastise me. Now, in our home, instead of using the term spank or punish, we use chastise. Uh, we tried to be really spiritual parents, and that's what the Bible describes as discipline your children, so we use chastise. And here he is, screaming in terror as family members looked al along. Just chastise me. Just chastise me. Let's get this over. See, in his mind, he thought I was trying to kill him. <laughs> and I might as well have been throwing him into a pool full of fire. Because that's the way he envisioned what's going on. And he would have rather been disciplined than killed. Now, for many of us, that's the way we view God. And for many of us, that's the way we view our faith in God. God really wants to kill us. God's really irritated with us. And he would rather just throw us off. And so we cling to him because we don't have any other hope. And yet we cling to him in terror and fear and judgment and misery. And in our minds, we think it's our clinging to him that is rescuing us from danger. And yet God says, no, 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 that's not what's going on. It's not your clinging to me that is rescuing you. It's my clinging to you. And in 1 Peter, we see that he gives us a kingdom, the hope of a kingdom to prove to us, I'm not irritated with you. I'm not trying to pry you off of me and throw you into fire of judgment. I'm not trying to punish you. You see, in this world, you're going to suffer. And when you suffer, don't believe that it's me that God says. Don't believe that I'm the one judging you. No, I'm giving you something of value with each terrorizing step, with each move. There is hope that is being formed within you. And it's the hope of the kingdom that, that helps us see this, that helps us realize this. And in verse 13, it's this hope that produces within us holiness. Notice verse 13. He says, prepare your minds for action. Now, that is a military term. He's using military language here. And it was to gird your mind. And it was the visual of a Roman soldier who's going to battle. And, and Romans had robes and skirt-looking things. And what they would have to do as they went into battle is they would have to tie those things up so they could run, so that they could fight. 
And here, that's the picture. You're in a battle. You're in a war. You're in a world that is full of sin and death and is fighting against you. So you've got to understand you're in a battle, but you fight this battle with your thoughts. That's why he says be sober-minded. Don't be intoxicated. And what he's talking about here is don't be intoxicated with the world's thoughts. the, the, The way the world thinks about itself. The now, the temporary is all that matters. And the world is intoxicated with lust of the moment. And he says, no, you as Christians are sober-minded. You're not intoxicated with the thoughts of the world. No, you, notice he says, set your hope. Fix your confidence. Be settled, waiting, notice, for the hope that will be brought to you, the grace, the, the favor that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over the cosmos in heaven. He's seated there in unveiled glory. And there is a day that will be revealed to us and His kingdom will come and make all things new. And He says, as a Christian, you fight this battle by setting your hope on that kingdom and waiting for it to come. Remember, hope isn't wishing. This may happen, it may not. I hope it happens. No, it's going to happen. You're waiting for it to happen. Notice he says, as obedient children, children who simply hear the words of their father and do them in childlike faith. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Literally, this word conformed, it is a command that says stop being molded by the world. Stop being molded by the way the world thinks. And notice he uses the phrase former ignorance. Before you had the kingdom, it made sense to serve yourself in the now. The temporary is all that mattered. What I can get in the moment. And he calls that your former passions. And you had those former passions because you were ignorant of anything else. And now God has given you something better in the kingdom so you no longer have to be conformed and molded by those lusts, by those passions. There's a phrase the Bible uses, imaginations of the heart that help describe what goes on in our sinful thoughts and passions. The imaginations of your heart where your heart tells you what is right. What, what is true, what you should do is how you feel. And yet your hearts are bent toward, our hearts are bent toward ourselves. And so what our heart tells our mind makes sense is that you do what you want to do. You do what feels right. You get everything you can in the moment. And he says, no, 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 no. You have a kingdom coming to you. Don't think according to the imagination of your sinful heart. Remember something great and glorious is coming to you in Jesus Christ. In verse 15 he says, But as He has called you is holy. This is what you're doing with your mind and your heart. You're becoming holy. And the word holy means to be set apart to God. Just as the one who called you. The the word called here, it, it refers to the effectual call of the Spirit. God has called you to be holy. That is His purpose in making you a Christian is to set you apart. This word holy is very important in the Bible. It's used 600 times, 700 in all kinds of different ways. 
And it means this. It means to be set apart. It means to be different. It means to be other than. It means to be distinct. And it begins with this idea that God is holy. God is holy, holy, holy. Meaning His holiness is holy. His holy holiness is holy. His set-apartness is set-apart. His other-than-ness is other-than. What it means is He is like nothing you've ever seen. He's like no one in the world. He's like nothing that's created. He is totally set-apart. And what sets Him apart is His rightness. God is the only one who is inherently right. And He is the only one who always does what is right. But notice... He has set you apart by the Spirit to be made right. And now, as you wait on this kingdom, that's what happens to you. You, by thinking of the kingdom that is coming to you in Jesus Christ, because of the cross and resurrection, He will come and He will rule and He will reign. And as you think upon that, you are set apart from sin and death in the world, just as God is set apart. Israel was set apart in the Old Testament from all the other nations in their worship, in their diet, in their laws. They were set apart to prove God is right in everything He does and everything He says. And He says to us, now you in Jesus are set apart. You are holy. You are made to be holy and right in Jesus and in this kingdom that will come and make all things right. So you set your hope on that now. Listen, the Power for holiness to not sin in your life comes not because the desires of sin are too much, but because your hope in the kingdom is too little. Did you get that? See, we often think I sin because my sinful desires are just too much. They overwhelm me. I can't do it. No, you sin because your hope in the kingdom is too little. And what you are to do in this world is, is transform your mind by reminding yourself you have something better coming to you in Jesus. When we think about sexual immorality, pornography, premarital sex, adultery, some of us think about those sins and, and it's like something just comes over us, a desire that is just too strong and can't be overwhelmed and can't be conquered. And here what Peter is telling you is no. No. The, you, you give in to those lusts, those former ways of life, because you're not setting yourself on something better. The kingdom. Your mind, your heart on the kingdom. Your, your desire for sexual sin is to be overwhelmed by your hope in the kingdom that's coming to you and the pleasures that are at the right hand of God forevermore. And how do you fight against it? You read the word of God. You pray, God, would your kingdom come? It's better than any desire I can have now. Jesus, would you set up shop and rule and reign on the cosmos? It's better than anything I could give myself over to. You spend money that you have and you don't have on things that never satisfy you. Not because the desire is just too much. It's because your hope in the kingdom is too little. 
and you're not reflecting on the glories and treasures that are coming to you in Jesus. You fantasize about ways in which you can manipulate others, the way you can work up the corporate ladder through deception and fudging numbers. Not because that desire is too much. It's because your hope in a kingdom that promises you, you are a ruler in waiting. You have been set apart in Jesus who's at the right hand of God who will rule and reign forever. You're not setting your mind on that reality. That's why you're given over to your former lust. The degree to which you are hoping in the kingdom is the degree to which you will be holy in the world. Notice the text continues. And if you call on Him as Father. Now, in the New Testament, this word call on Him as Father, it's not just I refer to Him as Father. I refer to Him. It's not just a title for God. The word call there is actually a scream. And it's the scream of an orphan who's been rescued in an orphanage and is waiting for his father to come rescue him, pick him up and take him home. And what does the orphan do who knows his father, who's seen his father, who knows that's not his home? What does he do? Rescue me! Get me out of this orphanage! And that's the call of the believer in the world. We often think about that Abba cry and it's just this coo and it's cute. No, it's horrifying. It's an orphan that's been left in an orphanage who's screaming for his father to come rescuing him, rescue him. And we know this glorious kingdom the father has given to us will come rescue us. And notice your father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. God, who is a holy father, who also created the world, he judges all men according to his righteousness. He is the creator, we are the creature. And the standard is His holy law. And every single person who breathes, who's created in the image of God, will be judged according to His holy law, according to His rightness. And we fall short of that. That's why He says here, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, the word fear simply means to tremble in terror. And the thought that God is holy and you're not should cause trembling in your heart. It should cause reverence or reverential fear where He is holy, He is mighty, and I've sinned against Him, and there's trembling in my gut because of that. And he says, if you understand the holiness of God and who your Father is, there will be trembling in your gut. There will be a shaking in your being. He says, as you're in exile, as you live in this world, but notice what our fear is tempered by. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed. So he doesn't stop there. God judges according to the law. All men are guilty, but you have been ransomed. So your fear is driven and informed by something else other than God is going to judge me. No, your fear is mixed with hope that you have been ransomed from your futile ways, from those sinful desires, from those lusts that were passed down by your forefathers, the sin nature, the, the ways of life, 
rebellion, even righteousness that polished up sin but could not save you. Those things were perishable. They were rusting and fading away. No, but you have been rescued, ransomed, literally purchased back by something mind-blowing, something you could not provide for yourself something that has not been done for anyone else, a payment of infinite worth and value. Notice, but with the precious blood of Christ. So you fear God is holy and He's righteous, but you stand before Him in fear knowing you're covered in the blood of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that an amazing way to describe gospel kingdom hope? Yes, there must be fear in my gut. I must live with precision and gravity before God. But I do so as someone who's been ransomed. I do so as someone who has been covered in blood. And we go back to this Old Testament imagery where blood represents judgment. And to be brought near to God, another life had to be judged for your sin. And the people of Israel often found themselves sprinkled in blood of an animal because God was saying, another living thing has been judged so you can come before me, so you can become my people. And we see that in the Exodus. Remember the story of the Exodus as Moses is about to lead the people of God out of Egypt? What do they do the night of the Passover? They take their firstborn lambs. Firstborn, meaning this is the best. This is our prized possession. Be like you taking your little foo-foo dog. We got to get out of Egypt. What are we going to kill? Our most prized possession. All the other lambs, they're out in the courtyard. They're dirty. They're nasty. But we've taken the firstborn. And they would take it over to the table And they would press its head on the table and they would take a knife and they would cut the throat of their precious firstborn lamb. And then they would take something like a paintbrush and they would take that blood and smear it around and take it and wipe it on the doorpost. And the night of the Passover, when God was leading his people out of Egypt, he passed over all who were covered in the blood. He passed over all who were covered in the blood of their firstborn lamb without blemish, perfect. And he led them out of slavery because of the blood, because they trusted in him enough to be smeared in the blood. And he wiped out the firstborn in Egypt, but their firstborn was rescued. And he made them not slaves, but sons, as he carried them into the wilderness because of the blood. And he says, you want to know how precious your salvation is. You want to know how precious you are to God. You think about the precious blood of the cross that covers you. God loves His Son. Notice verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. That word foreknown, it's not just knowing something ahead of time. God knew His Son intimately before the foundation of the world. And it carries the weight of love. He was committed to the Son. He loved the Son more than anything else. John 3, 16, it was His only begotten Son. It it was the precious Son, the firstborn Son. 
and he loved him and he was committed to him. But notice he was manifest in this time for your sake. What's the point? He gave up his most valuable son, his precious son, who he loves more than anything else for your sake, who through him are believers, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. He raised him from the dead because he was innocent, because he was without blemish. If Jesus had any sin, he would still be in the grave. But he had no sin. He was dying for your sin. And that's why God raised him up and he's giving him glory in a resurrection so that your faith and hope are in God. So what does he call us to? He calls us to realize that if God would give us the precious blood of Jesus, we never think he's against us. And everything he promised us will happen. How can you doubt his love for you? He gave up his precious firstborn son for you without blemish, without sin, the only one who didn't deserve to die. So when he tells you, you have a kingdom coming, you can bank on it. You can invest in it. You can risk and you can sacrifice because it's true. How do you know it's true? You're covered in the blood of Jesus. He's not against you. He's for you. Jesus is back from the dead. All of his promises are yes and amen. You can't doubt he'll do what he says. So what does that produce in your life? Fear. Now, that sounds weird. And that sounds crazy. But it produces fear in the life of the Christian. Not irrational fear, but the same kind of fear when you're at the, the beach and you're... 30 stories up, if, if you've ever done that. And you look over the edge of that balcony and there's a rail there. And you lean and you lean and then all of a sudden, oh my word, and you back up. This is what just went through your mind. What if I fell? It, it's when you're standing on the side of a dam and you see raging water thousands of gallons of water that if you fell in and hit the turbines, you're gone. And you stand there and look at this massive thing. You're safe. You're safe. Ain't nothing happened to you on the ledge, on the balcony, but you still realize what would happen if you had fallen. It's the same way you stand in fear before the cross. You stand before the cross in terror. God is holy. How holy is God? It takes His firstborn Son to rescue me from my unholiness. And you stand there amazed that He would give the blood of the Son for you, but you stand there trembling. It would be a terrible thing to fall into the wrath of God. Look at the Son of God, the most infinite, perfect being Enduring the infinite fury of God, all that God would hate about me, being unleashed upon Him, all that God hates about sin. He's being torched under the fire of God's wrath. And you stand there, not willy-nilly, ho-hum. No, you stand there trembling. This would be terrible. And yet you stand there in hope because he did that for me. And you stand there with confidence, even mixed with your trembling. 
Oh, that's how much he loved me. How much does he hate my sin? He sent his son to die for my sin. How much does he love me? He sent his son to die for me. Isn't that amazing? And you tremble in your gut. You tremble amidst your hope. So you don't tremble like the criminal who's trying to hide something. The little kid who's lying to you. Could be family member, could not be. In your home, maybe. Who you know, you know they're lying. And they will not look you in the eyes. That's not the way you stand in fear before God. That's not the way you stand in fear before God. Why? You're not hiding anything. You've already been outed. You've already been put on blast. God knows who you are. He knows. And the infinite cost of your sin is all over you in the blood of Jesus. And so you're not trying to hide anything. You're not trying to cover your sin up. Some of you here today, that's why you're here. You're here out of fear. Because you think by being here, God's no longer going to be angry with you. You're trying to cover things up and you're trying to, it's sort of this tit for tat. If I can do a bunch of good things, it will make up for all the bad things I did in college and high school. And it ain't going to work. You can't cover your sin up. But in Christ, you don't have to tremble in fear because he's already unleashed condemnation on his son for you. So while in your gut, while in your gut, there is trembling. It's trembling with hope in the blood that has rescued you. Now, what does that have to do with holiness? If he loves me that much, why would I disobey? If he hates my sin that much, there's got to be a harnessing of my lust, of my desires, of my will in light of such fear. That's the heart of our holiness, trembling before the cross and gazing into the eyes of the Father to see love mixed with fear, driven by hope. And notice verse 22, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth. Now he refers here to the gospel and this purifying of our souls, our whole being happens when we believe the gospel. We trust in the gospel and our sins are forgiven. We're pardoned by the blood of Christ. But also the Holy Spirit comes to live within us and make us pure. Sometimes we think that believing the gospel is just this, it's this abstract transaction that happens out there. I say these words and something happens out there. No, the heart of the gospel is that the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you and begins to purge and purify all of those old desires that are polluted. Polluted. The way you've trained yourself to think and feel and believe, the Holy Spirit comes and He comes to make you new, your whole being. That's what happens when you obey the truth. Literally, when you believe the truth, you, you, you trust in the truth of the gospel. But notice why. For sincere brotherly love. Love one another from a earnest, pure heart. Now, that seems out of place, right? We're talking about holiness. We're talking about being serious and fear. And then all of a sudden he says, yeah, and that leads to love. Because as your heart is being disconnected from the passions of this world, you are being free to love one another in a way nobody else can. 
Because you're not thinking about yourself anymore. That's why he says you love from a sincere, pure heart. You can genuinely commit to one another even in suffering. What does suffering do to us? What is our natural tendency when we suffer? To withdraw. To begin to feel sorry for ourselves. To begin to think only of ourselves. And here is the difference with the Christian. When they suffer because of the hope of the kingdom, because of the gospel, they are free to love even as they suffer. Sometimes they choose suffering as an act of love because they're set apart for something better and they're freed up to love. Notice he says, since you have been born again, not with perishable seed. He's referring to the gospel. He's referring to the word of God here, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And he quotes Isaiah here who says, all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You live in a world where everything around you is fading because of sin and death. You live in a world where the glory The power and authority of all things is being wiped away like grass that's cut in your yard and you just blow the clippings out in the road and before long they're gone. Some of you say you're not supposed to blow them in the road. That's what I do. I live outside of city limits. They just blow away. And he says that's what's happening to the world. The kingdoms of this world are being mowed down and blown away. But you have the word of another kingdom that has been implanted in you like a seed. A seed goes in and there's no life. A seed goes in and it's dead. And what does the seed do? It begins to bring forth life. And what God has done in your dead heart is He has implanted a seed that is bringing forth life of a kingdom that will never be mowed down. A kingdom that is full of glory. And He says here, that is the good news that was preached to you. Just as God spoke at creation, let there be light. He has spoken into your heart with the gospel and life is coming forth. New life in a world full of sin and death. New life in a life that was given over to sin and affected by death. You have the Word that is bringing forth life. But notice again, what is it to do? Notice the mark of holiness that He just sort of shoved in there out of nowhere. Love. The primary mark of holiness is love. You see, a lot of us grew up in context where holiness meant that we separate from everybody. And we don't do a bunch of things. We don't listen to certain music. We don't watch certain movies. And we, we, we isolate from the world. And, and that's our view of holiness. And, and some of us think, think about those who are holy in our life And we don't think about love. We think about rules. And we think about condemnation. And we think about judgment according to rules. And there are at times rules and boundaries and things we set up in our life. But the chief characteristic of holiness is love. You are free to love. If you are growing in this word, you will love. If you are marked out to be holy, you will love. You know why you don't love? 
because you think it's losing. You, you think it's losing. When you have opportunities in your life to forgive others, why don't you do it? Because you think you're losing the argument. Because you think you're losing in the conflict. When you're not merciful to others who have hurt you, why? Because you don't want to lose. Or you don't love, you choose to hate because you want to win. So you sl slander and you push others down and you manipulate because you want to win. And what the hope of the kingdom is, is this. This is what produces love in your life. If you are a Christian, you have no more to gain. Ain't nothing else to win. You've already won in Jesus. He's got that covered. You're not going to lose anything. So if you have the hope of the kingdom that you're waiting for, what is that going to naturally produce? If you've already won in Jesus, love. You're going to serve those who have hurt you the most because you're free to lose because you've already won. You're going to forgive others. People are going to look in on your life and say, why would you be kind to that person after all they've done to you? Oh, i got a zillion years to forget about that when Jesus comes back. Why am I worried about that now? Oh, I can forgive. I, I, I don't have to hold on to this root of bitterness, this facade of power, grudges that are these futile little treasures that I hold on to, this power of slander and gossip. I don't have to cling to those things. Why? I'm free to let go because I have a great kingdom coming to me in Jesus. So we're marked by that kind of love. And it's rooted in one who would wash the feet of the very one who would sell him for 30 pieces of silver. If you ever think, I can't love, think about Jesus scrubbing the dirt off of Judas's feet as an act of love, knowing he's the one betraying him. If you don't think you can love, think about the cross and trembling and fear. Jesus dying for his enemies, walking to... No reason to go die for us. We violated God's holy character. We spew venom against him as our creator. We don't want to live the way... And he dies for his enemies in this amazing act of love. And some of you here love that way, and, and, and you know what God, you think God's doing? He's punishing you. Some of you hear that kind of love and you think, no, that's hell. I can never do that. God, you're trying to punish me and calling me to love my enemies. You're punishing me for all the bad things I've done and calling to me this version of holiness. And you say, I'd rather just be punished. I'd rather just cling to you with a guilty conscience and not do it. And yet... That's not the kind of love He frees us up to. That's not the kind of holiness that He gives to us. You know, my 15-year-old, when we go to the pool, he doesn't cling to me anymore. That would be really weird. I had this 15-year-old man clinging to me around the pool because he's scared. No, he's actually an amazing swimmer. He swims competitively and... He, it is, it is, he's so graceful, he's so fluid, strong, fast in the water, and I watch, and I'm, I'm blown away by it. I delight in watching him swim. 
But there's never a day I show up at any of his meets or watch him swim where I don't think about that day of him clinging to me, saying, just chastise me. And, and I, if I could have gone back to that day and shown him how he swims now, I bet he would have let go and jumped in. Maybe. I may have to push him a little bit. By the way, he did learn how to swim that day after eight hours of grueling torture. But I often think if we could go back and I could just show him, look at this amazing thing you can do. Look at, look at where you're headed in the water. And you know what God has done for us in the kingdom? He's shown us who we will be. He's shown us the way in which we're going to swim in hope. He's given us a vivid picture of where we're headed. And it's not misery. And it's not judgment. And it's not a fiery pit of hell. It's you are being conformed into the image of His Son. That's what you're going to be. And so when He calls you to hope and holiness, He's calling you to joy. Even in your suffering, in your suffering, who is He calling you to be like? It's not abstract. It's not chaotic. He is calling you to be like His Son who He has very clearly shown you He's holy. So be holy as He is holy. And when He calls you to holiness, He's not prying you off of Him in irritation. He's not judging you. No. He's, he's longing to delight to watch you walk and become what you will be in Jesus forever.